Welcome to another edition of Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today I've invited Robert Brenner back for another extended conversation on the state of the economy, especially given the dramatic plunges of the stock market, the proposed infrastructure plan, the inflation report, the budget, and all the rest. Robert Brenner is a professor emeritus of history at UCLA. He's also the director for the Center for Social Theory and Comparative History, or SISTICH, and the author of many books, including The Economics of Global Turbulence, The Boom and the Bubble, The Brenner Debate, and Merchants and Revolution. And he is also co-editor of Catalyst, a new journal of theory and strategy now just finishing its first year. Well, U.S. inflation rose faster than expected in January, stoking fears that interest rates will accelerate this year and that consumer price index measure of inflation grew by 0.5% against economists' forecasts of a 0.3% rise. It sounds kind of small, but this is the kind of thing that triggers all sorts of turmoil. Earlier this month, a report showed that accelerating U.S. wage growth raised concerns that the U.S. Federal Reserve will have to raise interest rates earlier than previously thought. And the report on wages triggered days of turmoil on the financial markets with two gigantic plunges and continued drops and rises. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics said there had been inflation across a number of areas, including gasoline, clothing, medical care, and food. So some investors are worried that this could pour fuel on the fire of last week's market sell-off. So when we come back, we'll take each of these in turn, beginning with the stock market plunges. Welcome back to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman with Robert Brenner. Well, starting on the 2nd of February, the S&P 500 suddenly plunged from its all-time high of 2873, which was registered on the 26th of January, to 2619 at the close of Friday, the 9th of February. This is what they call a formal correction when stocks fall by 10% or more. The ostensible reason for the fall-off was inflation fears by what seemed to be an unexpectedly large nominal wage increase of 2.9% for the year ending in January 2018, registered in the employment report that we spoke about that came out on the same day. Though it's not very high in either relative or absolute terms, it was the highest annual number since 2009. That apparent step up in wage inflation is what stoked fears, apparently, that the Federal Reserve would accelerate its campaign of interest rate increases and snuff out the long-running, truly spectacular stock price run-up. This was especially the case since it was also widely stated that the economy was finally growing dynamically, and everyone agreed across the board that this was the case in Europe and in the United States and indeed the world. So my question to begin with you, Robert Brenner, is did a sudden jump up in wages set off the stock market fall? Do you think that that's actually the case and that a jump up of wages was what caused it? And within that, what's your take on the stock market fall or plunge, and what is its relationship to the real economy? Thanks very much, Susie. It's very good to be back here again. As to that famous 2.9% nominal wage reading for the previous year, I mean, the ironies really are pretty rich. It was very soon discovered, 
quote, discovered, which is pretty hilarious given how people comb over this data, that this 2.9% reading was actually entirely beside the point. This was because this particular reading for wages was not the usual or appropriate reading for the working class. On the contrary, it was for the whole economy, and let me explain why that is not what we need. Usually what people look at and the right thing to look at is wages for the working class, the exploited by capital. And what that category is called is production and non-supervisory workers. That is the bottom 80% of the working class. And that's where we should look for what's happening to working class wages. Well, in that period, January 2017 to January 2018, it went up by just 2.4%. That is the correct wage reading went up only 2.4%, and that was roughly the same as for 2016 and 2015. Just to icing on the cake for the point, what did make for the big jump up to 2.9% had nothing to do with workers' wages. It was wages for supervisory workers, i.e. managerial workers outside the working class. It's not the right reading, and it quickly fell by the wayside, although people who could not explain what was going on continued to hold on to it. So, But we can see it certainly could not have been this jump in wages that was creating the problem. The stock market continued to fall throughout the following week, and no one by then had the illusion that wages were driving the problem. So I should mention that even, I mean, if you look at wages, you should probably touch on prices, and prices have gone up exceedingly slowly last year and and beyond. So this wage increase driving the stock market fall is mythical. I'm really glad that you're debunking that because even though it seems already to be conventional wisdom, there's a lot of people that are either saying it's paltry or non-existent or in the case of, I guess, this really widely reported case, one woman said she's really grateful she'll have another dollar fifty a month, possibly enough to buy a Costco membership in a year, but she's not quite sure. And that was with, of course, the tax cut plan. But coupled with the so-called rising wages, all we can say is that it looks like the working class isn't really feeling all the gain and wondering, well, what are they talking about? So if it isn't the accelerating wages, what actually did set off the fall in the stock market? In other words, if it's not wage pressure leading to this bugbear that they've had, what, since the 70s, inflation scares, about the Fed raising interest rates to snuff out this rally that we've talked about. What do you see, Robert Brenner, as behind this plunge in the stock market? Well, in the first place, we should be careful to say it's always difficult to explain a specific stock market move and even harder to predict the timing. If we could do that, we'd all be rich. Very few of us can do it for reasons we can talk about in another show. It's virtually impossible without inside information to predict what's going to happen in the stock market. But it's nonetheless very easy to see what the basic conditions that were setting up the stock market price fall were. What were the conditions that made this a likelihood? Simple point is that stock prices 
have risen much faster than could be justified by corporate profits in particular, or the health of the real economy more generally over the past nine or 10 years or so since the crash of 2008. Point is that corporate profits or earnings have not remotely kept up with stock prices, which have outrun profits to a truly historic degree. In fact, we can say that stock prices have so far outrun earnings that it's pretty evident that stocks are riding on nothing, riding on air. We have really excellent data for this. Data for the non-financial corporations, which is the corporate economy, the real corporate economy, leaving out finance. For this sector, profits went up around 40% between 2008, when we had the crash in 2017. But Prices in terms of stocks went up 100% in this period, two and a half times faster. To focus a bit closer on the immediate determinants, profits went up by just 7% between 2012 and 2017. But stock prices went up 63%. That is, stock prices went up nine times faster than corporate profits. So we can see that in recent years, there's tremendous pressure building up on the stock market because it's going up so much faster than profits. Indeed, not to belabor this, but because people just don't bother looking at this, they just make statements. Corporations' profits for the last four years have been basically flat for the non-financial corporate sector. So profits haven't gone up, but the stock market has flown up. Put the result another way, If we look at the data that the economist Robert Schiller has put together on the question of the relationship between prices and profits, what he shows is that just recently, the stock market price-earnings ratio, that is the stock price to the profits, has reached 34 to 1. That means 34 times higher are stock prices than earnings. This is higher, let me emphasize, higher than at any point in history, except for the 1990s equity price bubble. It's even higher than it was in 1929 at the time of the Great Crash. So on the most basic evidence, it's clear we have been experiencing a spectacular bubble. And in that case, we can't predict when it might burst, but we can say the stock market is very vulnerable. And, of course, I'm speaking to Robert Brenner, who is the kind of bubble expert and has a book, in fact, on the boom and the bubble. So, Robert Brenner, given that you're saying that we're now in super bubble territory or spectacular bubble territory, then maybe you could start to explain why the stock market dropped so sharply. You've already explained that rising wages and rising prices couldn't really be responsible for this stock market crash or plunge because there was no discernible acceleration of either prices or wages, both of which you've already stated were languishing near all-time lows. So then maybe you can say, maybe you can't, but what do you think actually caused that crash to happen? Yeah. Against that background of the bubble of very rapidly rising stock prices compared to profits, I think there is, in a sense, little mystery about what is the underlying problem. So when the Great Recession hit, that was in 2007 to 2009, roughly, and at the same time, we had a stock crash and a housing market crash, the Fed, as an emergency measure, as it had started to do 
in the 90s with the equity price run up and in the housing market, it did everything it could to use its so-called monetary policy, its control over what the Fed borrowed, and at the same time, its control over interest rates to bail the economy out. Essentially, what it did was bring what's called the federal funds rate, that's the rate that the Fed controls, and it controls essentially the interest rate that banks led to one another at. So it brought this down to zero. So for wealthy people who own most of the shares outside of pension funds, this zero-level interest rate was looking them in the face, and naturally they regarded it as a godsend or a fedsend, <laughs> as it meant that they could make money simply by borrowing at near-zero rates and using the loans to buy stocks. Since the demand for stocks kept going up, so did stock prices and so did the wealth of the rich. This mechanism could not be more obvious. So it's, it's simply Fed policy that has been driving up the stock market. On the other hand, nothing else has been going up and this is a very important point, you've had these incredibly low interest rates, and it's an indication how weak the economy is, and we'll come back to it, that these ultra-low interest rates for eight or nine years have not had any impact at all virtually on what the corporations have done as far as investment or raised productivity or let alone wages or employment. So this is it. This is not only an incredible boon for the corporation, but it's it for the rich. This is the really the way they make money. So where are we? So we are at a point now where the initial justification for that interest rate laxity by the Fed is beginning to wear thin. I mean, you're talking nine years since the crisis, and it's getting hard for the Fed to say, oh, we need these low interest rates, otherwise the economy is crashing. And so there's been growing pressure on them to return the interest rate regime to normal, which means to raise interest rates. And so Janet Yellen, in the most cautious possible way, has continually said, and recently a little bit more stridently than before, but so carefully, that we're going to have to raise interest rates and move them back to normal. Now, this is, it seems to me, the underlying problem. It's very clear. The campaign is on, and anything that makes it look more reasonable or more necessary to raise interest rates, sends the stock market into a tizzy because at that point, they think, say, rising wages, which hasn't happened, or say, slightly rising prices, which have happened, in that circumstances, the Fed has even more excuse to raise interest rates and return things to normal, in which case the stocks are very vulnerable. One final point, which is on the same terrain and brings us back to that consumer price index rise that was announced today. Consumer prices are incredibly low. I mean, there's been nothing like how low consumer prices have risen in recent times, right up till, till now. 
But it's a big problem for the economy if, in one final sense, if consumer prices do not rise. So there is a pressure in the economy from the standpoint of capital for consumer prices to rise, which is that productivity growth has been spectacularly low. I'm talking about low by all historical standards. So what that means is that output per labor input is very, very low. So in order to prevent there to be any kind of squeeze on profits, what has to happen is capitalists have to be able to raise prices a little bit more than they had because why? And this is the key point. They have to raise prices not because wages are going up too fast, but because profits are going up too slow. And they need to raise prices to counteract that low productivity growth. So this is the kind of final piece of the puzzle. The economy actually needs, from the standpoint of the capitalists, not our standpoint, standpoint of the capitalists, needs a little bit more inflation to keep profits up. But if it does that, then it will give a final excuse to the Fed to raise interest rates. So the real buggy bear, rising Fed interest rates, which are incompatible with what has been the main money-making mechanism for the rich, and that has been rising stock prices and other asset prices. And we're going to go into those. And I want to thank you, Robert Brenner. There's just so much that you just said that it might take even further unpacking, but we have to move along. But I like very much that you described the Fed policy over the past period. Let's call it even during all of Janet Yellen's tenure and that before up it. Up until this. Period. Right up until now. You call it a godsend or a Fed send. I think you've coined a very good new term because it really shows, as you put it, really the rational response to what's going on in the economy by the Fed to try to prevent it from exploding, and on the other hand, the absolute need for them to do the other, Mm -hmm. you know, which is not the rational thing to do, but for making money purposes. So let's go back just a little bit before we move on to belabor the point, as you said. So is there a healthy, real economy, and is that what's justifying the rise in stock prices? And as you've said, if that wasn't one factor in addition to low interest rates that was keeping the stock prices up, even if indirectly, the fact that, well, almost everyone assumes and believes and says that the real economy is just doing really, really well, and that the first time in how many years, so many years, that the economy seems to be operating on all cylinders. And this is, as we've stated, and you've stated, the virtual unanimous take of economists, not just in the U.S., but everywhere. So... Isn't it then a sign of the health of the economy that employment's been going up rapidly, unemployment's been going down, and now we have the report that wages are going up with employment? Let's be straight. Let's be clear about this. No (laughs) evidence on rising wages. So what here is the rational core, which we will see is quite irrational, the irrational core indicating that unemployment is going down, the labor market is tight, the economy is therefore perking along very well, is we have this 4.4% unemployment rate today. No doubt about that. That's what is registered. That's what the unemployment rate 
has always been. I mean, they're using the same measure, and that 4.4% measure in the past unquestionably indicated a very tight labor market. It would be that we could, if this was an indication of the tight labor market, which it was in the past, if it still was, then we could be expecting a squeeze on the labor market, and we could expect wages to go up, and we could expect inflation and all the things that they're worrying about. On the other hand, we could be saying capitalist economy is doing exceedingly well, as we knew it ultimately would. Well, the problem is that 4.4% rate is very misleading as an indication of a tight labor market. Why is this? The unemployment rate measures the percentage of people unemployed compared to what? Compared to those participating in the labor force. Now, to participate in the labor force, you have to have a job or you have to be seeking a job. And so that is what the unemployment rate is all about. But the problem is that for a very long time, and especially since the crash, and especially since the deep depression that accompanied the crash, people have dropped out of the labor market. They've dropped out of the labor market for the obvious reason that they're not expecting to be able to get a job. And they face that frustration, but they're not going to kind of drive themselves crazy about appearing at the employment office and asking about a job when there isn't one. So what we have seen is that if we take into account not just the number of people unemployed, but also the people who are not unemployed officially, but who are out of the labor market, so the sum of the unemployed and the non-jobbed, if you will, that number compared to the obvious thing it should be compared to, which is all of the potential workforce, that is people between 18 and 64, if we have that as the kind of so-called denominator or the measure of what the percentage of the actual potential workforce is employed, we can see that the unemployment rate is in these terms actually still very high. That if you do that proportion, that is unemployed plus not employed over the number of people who could be working, that number is still not down to the level it was in 2007 before the great crash or 2000. So what we see is that there is a very serious problem with regard to the labor market, as the economists put it, and a very big problem getting jobs, as we would put it. Anybody who's going out there knows that the labor market is very rough. So that should put pay to the notion we have a tight labor market. Now, just to complete the point, because there is not a tight labor market, there is no upward wage pressure. And with all the talk about accelerating wages, you would hardly expect that real wage growth actually is horrible. It's averaged 0.3% since the crisis hit in 2008. 0.3%. And in the last two years, real wages, 0.2% minus in 2016 
and minus 0.7% in 2017. So this runaway wages in the last couple of years has failed to give positive wage growth at all. Not surprising since the labor market is so loose. Well, this is really quite important again, Robert Brenner, because as you were discussing, you know, those no longer looking for work but are counted. No matter how you count the rate of unemployed, it seems like it's always vastly undercounted. Right. And this has always been the case. But also now added to that is you're getting unanimous coverage in the business press and beyond that, you know, wages are going up and the economy is just ticking along just fine. And would that there were actual reporters, economic reporters, that would just say the truth about what's really going on. So we're continuing to talk about how the real economy is doing. But, you know, when people talk about how the real economy is thriving, they're not confining themselves just to what you've just discussed, that is employment and unemployment and rates and wage growth or real wage growth. They're just saying it's just doing well across the board. So what do you have to say about that? Is that a true statement? I mean, it's a kind of embarrassing situation to be here and saying the things I'm saying because the normal response of listeners should be complete skepticism. Where's this guy been? I mean, has he been on the moon? I mean, what's he talking about? Uh, Yet, I'm having trouble putting this, but not only is the economy not thriving, not only is it not doing pretty well, not only is it not doing kind of badly, it's doing horrifically. It is doing as bad as it has done since the Great Depression. And not only that, but it, in certain ways, the key performances have been even worse than in the Great Depression. Two key measures, probably the most decisive or the most incisive, because it's the one that everyone agrees tells us how healthy the economy is, is productivity. Why is productivity so important is because it tells you how much each person can produce. If each person can produce a lot, leaving aside the question of distribution between capital and labor, it means that there is a potential for more higher wages, higher consumption, higher social spending, all of that, without actually endangering profits. On the other hand, it means that profits can be made despite such costs. But the fact is that productivity has been experiencing an unbelievably awful run for about as long as you can see. Just for the most recent period, the relevant period since the crash, productivity growth has been 1.2%. That is the worst ever. And if you look back, you will be see that basically since 1973, productivity has been horrific. It's been basically in the region of between 1.2% and 1.6% for this long period since 73, with the exception of the bubble economy in the late 90s and early 2000s. So we've had horrific productivity growth recently for as long as any journalist ever talks about. 
that since the crash. And we've had horrific productivity growth going back to 1973. Or put it like this. If you look at productivity growth since 1973 to the present, it's lower significantly. So that would be like 1974 till now, that's 40 years. It's lower than it was between 1920 and 1948. People will know that period encompassed the Great Depression. And yet, during that period, productivity was a third higher than it's been for the last 40 years. So that is the first and crucial test of the economy. Second one is closely related, and I'll be very quick, and this is investment. And investment is also as low as it has ever been. There's no sign of improved investment, and it would be not a stretch to say that these two things are related. You're not getting much investment. You're not, therefore, getting much productivity growth. Therefore, you're not getting much employment, and profits are a bit under siege, with some exceptions, which we'll come to. So we're in a terrible situation in terms of how well the economy is working, and everybody is paying a giant price for that, except we know the top 1% and one-tenth percent. I'm Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm speaking with Robert Brenner. Okay, so let's go from there to what you've done before, Robert Brenner, and I think people who haven't heard you before may not know your kind of economic worldview, but those who have will go over it somewhat more carefully right now. The obvious question then is why the economy is doing so badly. You've often said that it's because of insufficient demand, and you've just sort of laid this out. And it could be behind why people aren't investing and why people aren't spending more money, why capitalists are hoarding money. And what you've often said in terms of the insufficient demand question is that it's the problem of overcapacity on a world scale. And as I said, for those who know your worldview, You'll know that you've shown in many different areas and articles how one after another of the new manufacturing powers that came online around the globe, especially in Asia, instead of innovating and producing something new, they've imitated and produced the same thing that's been produced elsewhere, but at a much lower cost. And so they hijack the technology and the expense of development, and then they do it cheaper. So this causes the problem in profitability, and it also causes the problem in overcapacity. So let's go from there to talk about how this relates right now to the problem that you're just laying out about the real economy doing very badly, insufficient demand, and the volatility, or let's not call it volatility, but the way that the stock market interest rates and employment have fit into it. Yeah, I mean, at least an initial stab at the kind of big picture would be as you say, at least what I would try to argue is that you have this problem of one after another, great manufacturing powers coming online, producing the same thing as before, meaning that there is an oversupply compared to the demand that drives down prices and squeezes profits. That's the basic picture. But what follows from that basic picture is that this is a crucial position held not just by me, but by many radical economists who see the profit rate as essential. So overcapacity here, 
leads to problem of the profit rate. Why are we looking at the profit rate? Why do we think the profit rate is important? And the reason for this is that the profit rate gives you an idea of what kind of resources the economy has to expand and what are the incentives to expand. So there's small surpluses with low profitability, low incentive to invest, and that leads to a situation which we've been talking about. There's going to be low investment. There's going to be low employment because the demand for both plant and equipment and labor is going to be down. So those things are down. And so it's this movement from profit rate to the real economy by the particularly the problem of aggregate demand that is giving us the difficulty in terms of investment, in terms of employment, in terms of productivity. And so that is essentially the take I would give. And I would say that, in effect, what happened is that capitalists face falling profits, they cut wages, and we have, in addition to not being able to invest, they're cutting costs and cutting government spending. And so in all these areas, there is a slowdown. So the issue then is how did the economy get going and what has the economy is dependent on is basically the growth of debt. And it's been the growth of government debt that has driven the economy. Finally, the way in which ultimately government debt has driven the economy has gotten narrower and narrower. They don't have deficit spending anymore. They have rising asset prices, and rising asset prices are supposed to make the companies rich and make them invest. But today, what they do is they take their profits, and because the profit rate is low, they invest in more assets, or they buy, actually buy back stocks, they pay out dividends, they do all these different things that that don't grow don't, the economy. That don't grow the economy. One of the things that you've talked about is a sort of different view of neoliberalism, and we've spent a whole show on it, but you don't simply see it as privatization and marketization, but mostly about upward redistribution. And you've just started to kind of scratch that surface, but it's all about how that upward redistribution of which this new tax plan is going to vastly accelerate and increase by income and wealth go to the top 1% by political means. And that means that the top wealth holders are able to benefit from ripoffs and privileges created by the government and political parties at the expense of the rest of us. And that leaves the rest of us to fight over crumbs, this so-called 2.9%, which as you've shown is much less than that, far less than that. And it gives us a better sort of understanding of what really is happening and what really is going on, because we're talking about the redistribution and what it has to do with demand. And we'll tie it up later with the new infrastructure package and tax package and budget package. So maybe you could just start to like pretty quickly go over what that means. Yeah, I'll try to do that very quickly. Yes, I see, and I'm certainly not alone in this, that not only do we have this long-term profitability problem, which has led to basically a policy of austerity, but there has been a need to supplement that. That is what the standard capitalist response to 
profitability difficulties is to change the distribution of income from production. So you're producing, and if you're having profitability problems, you cut wages. Or if you're having profitability problems, you make people work harder. Or if you're having profitability problems, you cut government taxation. But it's all a question of the share between profits and wages of capitalists producing goods by buying labor power, buying machinery, putting together, and selling. That's capitalism. But the problem has been that just austerity, just the redistribution that goes along with cutting taxes, cutting wages, and doing speed up and all this, it barely gets you anywhere. You get somewhere. But if the economy is really growing slowly, the pie is growing slowly, even if you get all the gains to capital rather than labor, capital's not getting very much. So around 1980, there's a bit of a discussion, the historical conditions, but around 1980, what began to happen was a completely new way of dealing with this problem of low profitability. And this was through upward redistribution determined by basically state action. Standard form of this, taxes, tax cuts. Next, government debt. Rich people lent money to the government, made money hand over fist. Thirdly, what starts happening is that the laws and regulations that are about monopoly are no longer being enforced. So it allows companies to raise prices and to especially have intellectual property rights that the government has been speeding up uh, to allow firms even like Google and so on, who you think are making all their money simply by having technology that others can't duplicate. Others can't duplicate it because now intellectual property rights have been strengthened, and so more money is being made in this way. Then you have the whole financial sector. The money is being made by deregulation and so forth. I can't go into it, but the financial sector is the key central spot where this upward redistribution politically happens. So you can see the beauty of this. The capitalists don't have to worry about cutting wages or class struggle or anything like that. They just do it the not-so-old-fashioned way of not producing, but just getting redistribution. And this can bring us now pretty close to where we start off with the stock market. Because in effect, perhaps the most spectacular, I don't know which is the most spectacular, but there's so many spectacular modes of raising income for the rich by political means. What now is the central way is simply by low interest rates that drive up stock prices. So what this means is that corporations and rich people make money by the bubble. So they invest in financial assets. They don't have to invest in plant and equipment and so forth. So this is the perfect example of the new form of economy where income is directly redistributed upward. And this brings us to exactly why the situation is so tricky right at this moment, because right now the chief mechanism, or one of the chief mechanisms, transferring income upward to capital is being called into question. That is the low interest rates that have driven up the stock market. And since there's no way back, in other words, there's no 
easy way to make profits. Otherwise, this is putting the money going to the wealthy in difficulty. It also raises, if you want, this whole question of the of infrastructure. So, so I want to go into that because this is really interesting. When Trump was elected and ran on a campaign of economic populism, it kind of struck fear into the hearts of everybody who's been making money through neoliberalism, which, as you've explained, is redistribution upward via politics and political means, which you've explained very well, I think. And so the question then was, oh, my God, is it all going to change? Is he really going to be a kind of right-wing Rooseveltian spending money as far as the eye can see on shovel-ready infrastructure projects? Then you get the tax cut plan, which seems, okay, no, it's not going to do that. It's just going to be business as usual, and it's going to further increase the you know inequality, and money's going to go further to the top 0.0.1% or whatever the actual number is. But then there's this new budget that's been put forward, which really sees mostly the increase in the military. But the budget and the infrastructure plan proposed by President Trump seems sort of like a kind of classic bait and switch. And you've noted, as I said, how redistribution is done through politics. So now, what's your view insofar as this budget and this infrastructure plan does at least nominally spend a little bit of money on infrastructure and education? Apparently, they're going to vastly increase the number of apprentices. God knows what they're apprenticing for, and they'll be paid in the education budget for that. Is this like still in the interest of the capitalists who are doing just fine through political means? Is it a threat? And and how do you explain this with regard to everything else you've just said, Robert Brennan? Sure. I think ironically, or as I think anybody who is bothering to pay any attention has seen, Trump won the election and people should have no doubt about it because neoliberalism completely failed to provide any decent standards for working people. It was a working class revolt, had plenty of elements of racism, but the idea that there is a conflict essentially between this issue of people being squeezed by capital and trying to fight that by rejecting the neoliberal program, and at the same time saying, oh, what's the real source of my problem is black people or immigrants or so on. These are not incompatible views. They're perfectly compatible with one another. And Trump gave the impression that he was a populist and was going to do something about this. Almost everybody realized that this was not going to happen and that he would depend, like everyone else, on the dominant capitalist forces, and these dominant capitalist forces were finance, depending on globalization, and uh, basically this whole upward redistribution economy. So Trump, in this sense, has been more or less a perfect exemplar of the new neoliberal economy, but now with a little bit of a populist cover. So what is this? First of all, Biggest tax breaks ever. That's a simple thing. That's what everyone expected. And is, by the way, what the Democrats would have done as well, just not as much. They would have just done it to a smaller degree. Flip side of it is the gutting of long-time programs, which actually cost something, not a huge amount, but are being Trump's program is to eliminate and cut back even the basics of Social Security, Medicare, and so on. Medicaid. So Medicaid. So these are two classic modes of 
redistribution, leaving aside the stokey of, of the stock market. But then Trump says, oh, so I'm going to, like I promised, I'm going to provide the infrastructure that the country needs, the bridges, the roads, and so forth, that are going to speak to the economic problems of this economy. Don't forget coal. Of course. Uh, I, I would never forget coal. So if you think about this, and it's an unbelievably ugly picture, which is that normally through the whole history of capitalism, the state has been crucial, particularly in the history of the U.S. capitalism, the state has been absolutely crucial in providing infrastructure, providing education to underpin the capitalist economy. It has been a huge factor. People talk about free enterprise in America, but the state support for development has been one of the fundamental reasons the U.S. has done so well historically. But now that we have an economy in which so much is dependent on politics and political upward distribution, this whole issue of infrastructure, education, all that's health. All that, which you think would be bread and butter for capital, is no longer bread and butter for capital. They don't need that expenditure if what is going on to get the money is political redistribution. So these fundamental needs for development, which have been at the heart of capitalist development, frankly, and at the heart of the capitalist state, capitalist state has very often been very progressive to make capitalist profits. These are now off to the side. There is no such need. And so everybody, including the Democrats, have been pushing basically to keep down all of that sort of infrastructure, social spending, and so on. Of course, we've had none of that for probably a couple decades. So What's going on then? What is this infrastructure program that Trump has? Well, it's perfectly fit to the neoliberal, to the new Trumpian mode or uh, the new upward redistributive mode because what they are saying is not that we – and it's unbelievable to read this. I read the article in the New York Times, the main analytical article on this uh, yesterday, which I recommend everyone to read. It's an amazing statement. And what the Trump administration is saying is we're not going to provide money where it's needed by some objective standard, like do we need roads? Do we need schools? Water systems. Do we need water? Do we need health? Of course, we don't need any of those things. Those are for people's standard of living and to stoke a modern industrial economy that is going away in in the United States. So what do we do? What is this infrastructure program? Astoundingly, it is to provide kind of startup funds or co-investment for projects that will make profits for rich people. So if you have a golf course that looks like it's going to make some money for maybe Donald Trump, you get a tax break, you get co-funding from the government, and profits get made. And a beautiful road to the golf course. And maybe a beautiful road to the golf course. Probably with toll booths. So what you're getting is the Trump populism is being implemented in this new post-1980 forum, upward capitalist money-making by politically driven upward redistribution. The Trump regime 
has taken like what the Democrats did and what the Republicans did in the neoliberal era with Wall Street and with globalization, all of that. They've now taken that to the highest level. I'll just mention one thing because so far we're a ways for the population to wake up. But if you look now back to this thing that we used to call the working class, which is really just about everybody, and asking about what is being foreseen for these people. It is, if you look at Trump's major funder, Robert Mercer, who was also the main backer of Bannon. And and, Breitbart. And Breitbart, and was one of the key forces for that whole Trump position, both before and after. What does Mercer say? We cannot continue to have uh, government spending to help people who are not being employed or who are suffering. They're not close to being employed. They're having drug problems, so millions of difficulties. Mercer says, we can't be concerned with that. The people who should get the money are the job creators and the economy creators. And if you're not one of them, screw you. And if you're going to happen to die in the process, well, that's too bad. That's the Malthusian position that was dominant in the first periods of capitalism, late 18th century, early 19th century, when industry was just getting off the ground, workers needed to be squeezed, and that was the ideology. You could just die, and that's what the ideology is now becoming more explicitly today. Well, I guess you didn't leave it on a hopeful note, but I think we could say that Trump has finally shown a kind of innovative way to come up with the same old, same old, but with new lingo, and that so far it seems to be working. Robert Brenner, thank you so much, as always, for joining us on Jacobin Radio, and thanks all of you for listening. If you want to run out and get some of Robert Brenner's books, of course, there's The Economics of Global Turbulence, The Boom and the Bubble, The Brenner Debates, and then there's Catalyst, the Journal of Theory and Strategy. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Susie Wiseman.